Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm your host, Charlie McCarran, a composer in Minneapolis, and I have another special episode for you on the music business. I got to talk with Patrick Hertz from Tinderbox Music about how to market your music. We talk about Patrick's specialty, which is submitting music to college radio stations, and we talk about getting your music into TV and film. And he gives his perspective as a music promoter about how to get your music in front of people in a way that they'll actually listen. And what Patrick's found is that it boils down to doing your research, being organized and business-minded, and those are the people that he sees succeed in the music industry. So I hope this talk inspires you and gives you some tips on how to market yourself and your music. And if you're interested in getting your music promoted by Tinderbox, you can go to tinderboxmusic.com and get in touch with them. You can find all the ComposerQuest episodes at composerquest.com and on iTunes. I'd be happy to get a little iTunes review from you too if you've been listening to the podcast. You can also find ComposerQuest on Facebook and Twitter or email me if you have any questions or suggestions. charlie at composerquest.com so now, on to my talk with Patrick Hertz of Tinderbox Music. I'm here with Patrick Hertz from Tinderbox Music. Patrick, Hi. How's it going? <laughs> Good. So, we're here in a house, actually, Tinderbox yeah. Music's office. You're saying that a lot of music promoters in Nashville actually work out of houses too yeah yeah it's it's pretty common practice on on music row if you ever go down there you know there's there's several blocks of what looks like just houses but there's a lot of small businesses that run um and it's anywhere from you know record labels to management teams i mean uh, some of the performing rights organizations, the international ones like SoCan, have like a, a house that artists that can actually travel to and and stay at when they come to the states oh. to do business. Um, so I mean, it's a wide variety of different you know things, but it's it's really accommodating for our purposes. I mean, we don't need much more than a space to do yeah. what we do with internet and phones. Coming in, I saw stacks and stacks of envelopes and CDs everywhere. Yeah, yeah, you happen to hit us on a day we're mailing out uh, some records to radio. At what point do you see yourself not ever having to ship out CDs? It's hard to say. You know, most of our stations that we service in the radio side of things, where it's much more important to have the physical distribution, really still prefer it or even require it at times. Um, We've had music directors send out blast emails. They've written tirades. Uh, against digital delivery and and basically it's more expensive for a lot of these stations to be actually spending the time to download the records um, to then often have to put it onto a cd to file it into their library for future use it becomes more time and more expense out of their pocket so if an indie artist comes to you uh, what goes into a music promo campaign Sure. Yeah. Because I I don't even really know exactly what (laughs) that looks like aside from emailing people and sending out CDs. But right, right. Well, it's it's multifaceted, and it depends on how people hire us. So we work with 
you know, independent artists that are doing self-releases. We work with people that are doing releases through labels. And often when that's the case, we're kind of supplementing what labels are also doing on their own. You know, we here at Tinderbox have a few services that people can, can hire us for primarily, you know, one of which I've already mentioned, which is the radio. Um, we also have a television licensing department and a press department, you know, all of which we do our own things in, but we try to work collectively as a team when we, we can. Our philosophy is kind of to be as comprehensive about the promotion as possible. When we're doing radio, it's a lot of, of phone calling. I mean, primarily radio promo is done over the phone. Hmm. Um, we do as well email, um, but it's not as big of a tool for us for actually collecting the data as much as it is just getting the information out to the stations and kind of constantly reminding them like what's coming up. So who is it you're talking to when you're on the phone with these radio stations? Primarily music directors. Most all the stations have one some, some of the stations will have a multitude of music directors, depending on the size of the station, the format of the station. I mean, we're primarily focused on the CMJ panel, which comprises primarily of university radios. Um, so in what, and CMJ? And- CMJ is the, the College Music Journal. They're a publication out of New York City. They've got an online publication that comes out each week, and more notably, the festival that they have in October each year. It's a conference they have each year. And it's downtown Manhattan. It's it's a really big production. It often features some of the best upcoming artists. You know, in the last four or five years, even ten years, you know, you've seen people like the Black Keys, the Arcade Fire, you know, highlight right at the cusp of their careers, right before going on to having commercially successful careers. So there's select stations across the country that participate in CMJ's reporting and tracking system. They pay a fee to be a part of this community. So it's a finite number of stations, partially for that reason. Um, And they collect the data each week and put it into an algorithm based on all the individual stations' charts uh, to create the national charts. So part of our goal is to obviously get our artists on as many individual charts as possible and as much getting as much airplay as possible tracking that data for them and ideally getting them onto those national charts as well, which we do typically have a few artists popping up onto the top 200 charts. We almost always have people in the top 40 hip-hop charts because our, our hip-hop department has been very strong in the last couple of years. The largest assets that we have are going to be the quality of music we're working with, which is why we're as selective as we are with who we basically who we choose to bring in the doors and then then it's ultimately their decision as well to hire us or not yeah because i i've always wondered i mean if someone has enough money um right i mean but their music sucks well then what happens right (laughs) you know we are a business so it's like we do strive to survive and and you know pay our bills keep the lights on here um so to some degree you know a minute degree you know, we're able to be flexible with people depending on if they're a brand new band that's just releasing their new record and it might be pretty lo-fi, but the music is solid, you know, and it, it might not, they might have never have gone on a tour before or really done anything. Um, this can be a great foothold for them to start. Whereas there are some bands we work with that have done multiple radio campaigns and already have television placements and licenses and a lot of great things going on. They're, you know, setting up for their next national tour. But there is a hard line that we really 
follow because it's very important to the quality of all of our future campaigns as to who's going out mm. now. So as probably many of my listeners would ask, uh, if you don't have a lot of money, but your music's still good, what can someone who doesn't really have a budget, what can they do as kind of a first step to getting their music right. promoted? I mean, um, there's a lot of good resources for that. You know, if you're an artist and you're looking for resources to build a budget for promotion, uh, Kickstarter and all the other crowdfunding pages are a great place to go to. Uh, we've had bands come through who want to hire us, who spent a couple of months in advance doing their fundraising to pay for what we ultimately do. Uh, there are resources online. I mean, you can get station lists from CMJ. There's websites like radio-locator.com where you can do research on all of the radio stations in your immediate area. But you just kind of got to build from the ground up. And there's all kinds of books on it. You know, If you go on Amazon and you go to some of the classics like um, This Business of Music is one that's been around forever. It's like a 600-page book that like literally has most everything you need to know. You know, there's tons and tons of different resources. I mean, the sure. Indie Guide, Indie Bible. Well, I have a listener question from Michael Chadwick. He asks, what's the best way to actually get noticed? To actually get noticed. That's, you know, a loaded question to yeah. some degree. Because <laughs> um, there's so it much that goes who into you it. Want to yeah, notice. who do you want to get noticed by? It's such an intricate weave of so many things. Obviously, in an artist's wheelhouse, there's got to just be quality music being made. The quality of recordings, obviously, that's something that's well in your control, whether you're doing that yourself or going into a studio to do that. Um, getting a good mastering job done. If you're not a graphic designer, paying somebody that you know to do artwork is crucial. <laughs> you mm -hmm. don't want to send something out that doesn't look professional. That is one thing that will red flag, you know, cut your chances drastically. Um, you know, the ultimate things that you have to do as an artist is make good music, be prolific and write a lot of music. You know, you, you gotta, you gotta be li constantly listening, constantly writing and constantly refining your craft because you're an artist. Like, don't forget that, you know, <laughs> that's something I think a lot of people just think, okay, I can play guitar now and I've written like five good tunes. Let's just milk these five good tunes as much as you can. You know, it's not going to be your fourth or fifth song. that's going to be your best song. It's going to be like your 50th, 60th, yeah. 100th song, you know, that you've written. Yeah, how many, how many you know? Beatles albums came out within like 10 years? I right, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, they're a very short career. They made a lot, a lot of music and that's just the recorded and, and you know, final product music that we all hear. There was certainly a lot of other gems that never made the cut. There's a great documentary with The Edge, with Jack White and oh, yeah. Jimmy Page. It's going to get loud or, or something like it that. It might get loud. It might yeah, get loud, think, yeah. yeah. And at one, one point, they go into the Edge's house, and he's just got this, this literally stacks and stacks and stacks of tape demos that he did. <laughs> and they're literally, he just go back and pull anyone out. You know, you find uh, this track that he made when he was 15 years old just laying down a bunch of licks, you know? And, and 
it's how you perfect your craft. It's like a painter. You're not going to go and sit and do the Mona Lisa your first time sitting in front of an easel. You know, it's going to take you years and years to refine that. Um, but this, yeah, this is all kind of an aside. I mean, there's so many things that go into getting notice and being relevant in your home market is the first step, you know, getting yourself some supporters, getting yourself some general knowledge of the music industry, which, like I said, you can go and find these resources online. I mean, there's tons of good literature about how to be professional in the music industry. And I think that from my experience of working with a lot of different artists, the bands that ultimately do the best are not the ones that necessarily have the best songs. They have good songs, but they're the ones that take the appropriate steps of, of promoting themselves. They stay organized, they're business minded. And that's ultimately what it takes to, to be an independent musician in today's day and age is not just be the guy writing the songs. You got to be the businessman and you got to be a little bit of everything because there's other people that are doing this too. And you're, you're fighting for that attention. Um, so you got to figure out what's going to make you stand out and how are you going to do right by the people around you build a network and get people to your shows and get connected with the community around yeah. you. Yeah. I guess kind of along those lines, we had another question from Justin A. Scott. What are some common mistakes you see when composers or songwriters market themselves? Artwork is a big one. I think a lot of people run into that pitfall when they're marketing something. It's got a great sound but there's just no brand behind it. And I want to see the visuals and I want to go to your website and be able to, to find everything that I want to find. So that's, this is a whole separate thing. Being able to be found easily. You want to get your search engine optimization up to key, you know, and work with a programmer if you need to or do it yourself. Um, but when I type your band's name into Google search, I want to see in the first few hits your website you know, mm -hmm. if you have one, you don't necessarily need one in today's thin age with social media sites, but it is certainly a nice thing to see mm -hmm. your Facebook page, your Twitter feed. I want to go on and see that you're actively using these things because it is something that you can do to self promote yourself easily you know, getting on those social networks and interacting with the fans around you. Having those personal connections are very important. Yeah. So being able to be found. Is it easy for me to find out how to contact you? That is something that is seems so obvious, you know. <laughs> if you just send me a link to your music or I go on your Facebook page and I try to figure out who it is that I'm contacting or how and I can't, that, you know, it stops right there. I'm not going to go out of my way much further than that, which some people probably wouldn't even go that far. You just got to keep it simple, you know, and you just got to imagine yourself in the position of somebody doing this full time for a job. How am I going to make their life as easy as possible? Going to have everything very organized, keep it short, keep it concise, but make sure that it's all there, mm -hmm. you know? Um, yeah, it's hard to know the balance between like a, a flashy, cool site, but yet probably the better option is just something simple that people. It keep. is. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely think that having, you know, less is more, having the simple kind of image and brand behind what it is you're trying to do that I can just go and, and get it right away. And it's so, that's such a simple way of, you know, saying it that it's much actually harder from 
mm-hmm. <laughs> the back end getting to that point. But it is important to keep that in mind when building websites, when building yeah. your artwork and yeah. your brand, putting one sheets together. Yeah, because I, I, I feel like um, this is the case with me and I'm sure with a lot of composers and songwriters that maybe we write in so many different styles um, that it's hard to pigeonhole yourself. I mean, one CD they make could be totally different than the other CD. How do you keep that as a brand or do you just market it as yourself? Like, this is... Right. And this is, these are the kind of things you got to ask yourself. You know, you've got the music and say you are a really prolific songwriter and you write anywhere from indie rock to country to hip hop to whatever it is, you know, you got to decide whether you're going to be just a songwriter that's trying to maybe get these songs published or licensed or otherwise used by other musicians or sorts, you know, because that's a legitimate option. It's another whole competitive field of the music industry being just in publishing and as, as you're marketing yourself as a songwriter is, you know, not necessarily like a performing artist. But, you know, when you get down to being a performing artist and you say, I'm going to pursue this project, then it better have some limitations. I don't want to go to a band's page and find that their first song is a country song and their next song is going to be hard rock because I don't know how to sell that. You know, there's no one way to do that. Being versatile is great because you'll get a better understanding of songwriting of creating as an artist. And it's definitely a good thing to have in your wheelhouse. If you look at prolific songwriters through the ages, from Willie Nelson to the Brill Building writers or or people like, they wrote a lot of different kinds of music over the course of their career. One of my favorite songwriters, Ryan Adams, has branded himself as a multiple, you know, multiple genre artist. But you look at his projects and they're all branded differently. One of his first projects was Whiskey Town. That was an alt country band. And it's very clear when you listen to it that like this is the kind of band you go to in the Bible Belt. Or you go to a bar in the Bible Belt and you see this band shooting whiskey and just rocking the house until you know four in the morning. And that is clearly what I want to hear when I go to Whiskey Town. But then you go to Ryan Adams' uh, next albums and it's clearly... A totally a different emotion you can kind of feel sense his flavor of songwriting but it's a different concept and he branded himself as a solo artist he then went on to write a metal album at one point in his career that's a legitimate metal album he branded that with a different name you know you go to the cardinals which was another group that he did collaboratively with a bunch of musicians that definitely has its own sound too it's a little bit more in the vein of whiskey town but he branded it differently so, I mean, you got to take these lessons from people that have done it before. Um, the bands that really get me excited are the ones that have that direction. They may not have a sense of where their promotion efforts are going, but that's kind of where we come into play. Mm-hmm. But it's like they've got the groundwork laid, and it's exciting because this I can see taking off because they have an idea. Question here from Mary Beth Hutlin. In a digital age, what is the role of paper, leaflet, and poster promo? 
and how can it be used most effectively? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, we use a lot of, of different things here in the office. We use physical one sheets. It's more likely to be read if it's packaged right with the disc. I think with like leaflets and flyers, it's still something that if you're going to promote a show or if you're going through a town, you know, that you are just showing up at 10 hours or so in advance, maybe less, and you're trying to get people to come to the show, you know, going to the local watering holes, you know, trying to figure out where those target age kids, whatever kind of music it is that you're, you're playing, you know, if you're a punk artist, like you should probably find the local skate park and go down there and hang out with the kids and try to interact with them and hand out little leaflets and flyers. If you can do that and you've got time and you've got the energy and the efforts, you're going to find that more people are going to come to your shows. Turning to internet marketing, Peter Lund asked, what's the single most important social media site at this time for music promotion? Twitter, I think. I'm actually relatively new to Twitter, and I, I would have probably had said Facebook before that, but I think Twitter is a much more useful tool to use in any kind of you know promotion and interaction mm-hmm. um, it gives people an inside look at your daily activities or your, mm-hmm. your daily thought processes and your brand you can actually brand yourself based on the kind of language you use on twitter you know you look at some hollywood stars even like b-list people and, and c-list people that have a lot of followers because they're just posting funny stuff all the time. And that's their shtick. You know, people want to find things that are going to make them laugh. Um, and as an artist, you can really brand your Twitter to your voice, you know, your conversation, whether you're you know, on the road or writing a song. You know, you, maybe you're thinking one day, I'm going to write a song about this. And you can post that on Twitter or you know, ask a question or just interact with the fans. And it's a way that you can do that in real time. I found as a promoter, it's a really great tool because I can connect the dots. I can see a song pop up on a radio station's automated player. Some of these stations will have feeds just dedicated to their playlist that pop mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. But you know, most importantly, you're actually connecting with real people at the core of it. You know, you actually can say, "Hey, at you, <laughs> at whoever yeah. it is that you're talking to." And interact with them, have a conversation. Yeah. That, that's going to be a huge asset. If you look at some some of these people that have kind of set the mold for independent promotions and you kind of follow their Twitter feeds, like you look at people like Macklemore, like what is he doing? You know, what what kind of lessons can I learn? Obviously, you don't, you know, just you make it your own, but mm-hmm. you can follow these people as a model. One of the guests I interviewed, John Anilio, was saying um, with Twitter, which I think is really good piece of advice is an 80 20 rule that you talk about your stuff 20 percent of the time and yeah. promoting and then 80 percent sharing cool links and things right. that people wouldn't think are spamming them there's like a- i feel like the people with a following already can get away with just talking about themselves right. because they have that that following already but right. there's a learning curve to it and I certainly am not the one to ask about it because I'm still learning myself. But there's all kinds of resources online to learn about the ins and outs of how to effectively use any social marketing tool, whether mm-hmm. it's Facebook or Twitter or other, you know, Tumblr or whatever. This, you know, there's tons of them, mm-hmm. obviously. 
there's a lot of research that's that's been done of when the best times are to tweet, how many times mm-hmm. a day you should tweet. Again, the content that you post and what kind of content that is going to be the most effective. Yeah. A lot of this is boiling down to just doing your research, in my mind. You mm-hmm. know, If you're really dedicated to being a professional in this industry, you got to live and breathe it and diet. It's a hustle. And the ones that do hustle and get themselves the most learned they can be are the ones that survive, or at least survive the longest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of a fun question from Reese Mankenberg. Mm-hmm. Asked... What's the best genre of pop music to be in right now? <laughs> the best genre of pop music to be in. Um, from my perspective, as a college radio promoter, um, it's got to be, and this is pretty vague, but indie rock, indie pop rock. You know, you, you, you look at the top 20 CMJ charts, you, which you can do for free online, and you'll see what kind of flavors there are but if you prefer to be a, a songwriter and uh, write songs for most any genre, pop is just generally pop like you would hear on a top 40 station. You know, it's going to be the most lucrative, but it's also going to be the most competitive. Mm-hmm. So it, it, I think that as a songwriter, you need to hone your own flavor and craft and not necessarily uh, cater your songs to the trends that are going on. You're going to be better off in the long run not following what's happening now because what happens tomorrow could be entirely different. And that might be what you're doing, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You just kind of got to get creative and express yourself the best you can. I mean, if you're doing things for, like, publishing and licensing, look at your favorite soundtracks, look at your favorite shows, and try to figure out who those people are and what they're doing and what how many albums they've put out, what record label they're on, what producers they're working with. Uh, it's quite easy to find out who the music supervisors are. You can literally just watch the credits on any kind of programming, um, whether it is a movie or television or an advertisement or something like that, to figure out who made that, you know, who was Mm -hmm. the music supervisor. Mm -hmm. And cater to those kinds of tastes if that's ultimately your goal. A lot of music placements, um, I would say today, you know, are done with digital instruments. You know, I think that that's honestly more preferred uh, by a lot of shows having digital drums, you know, Mm -hmm. not necessarily the acoustic sounds, but something that they can mix into their show and make it work for them. Um, Mm -hmm. As much as it's creative thought and interpretation that goes into like what song is going to work best for this. It's all about the show, you know, and it's it's choosing the right Mm -hmm. song and not necessarily the best song. So they want to be able to remix it, kind of. They do, yeah. In fact, um, television, you know, has its own compression systems. Uh, If you think about it, they want all of these sounds to, again, work with the show. So they're going to fade things in and out based on the dialogue. They're going to make it all, obviously, sound the same. So it basically gets its own mastering job at the end of the day, if you think Mm -hmm. about it that way. Uh, We also typically work with instrumental versions of folks tracks too so if there's instrumental versions available usually just getting them in a a bounced AIFF or wave Mm. or some sort of lossless compression file is all you really need you don't have to get like a professional mastering job done because essentially that's what they're going to use it for Um, especially with instrumental versions which usually get used in more conversational parts of shows they're going to have it much lower in the mix anyways Jim Anderson was asking about this and 
he just was asking what are some of the best ways to get music in front of these influencers, the music supervisors. Sure. Um, a, a lot without of being annoying to these right, music right. supervisors cuz I'm sure they get hundreds hundreds and of, hundreds. Yeah. I mean, yeah. one of the things obviously that you can do is work with a professional that has the immediate contacts. Obviously, there's going to be a budget involved with that that you know, you're going to have to pay somebody for their time to do it. But that's part of the advantage of working with a promoter. They're going to get you right to those people. Yeah. And hopefully it'll pay off in the long right, run. Right, exactly. Yeah, which a lot of it certainly does if it is something like music licensing. You could t- work and find a publishing house that would take your music onto their library. Usually a publishing deal is going to entail you giving up a portion of your rights. If it's a really good publishing deal or, I guess, a more lucrative publishing deal, they might find other ways to compensate you along the way to create more prolific songwriting. You know, they want to stimulate your growth, but then there's basically what they're doing is they're paying into you and any kind of royalties that you get paid out, those things get paid back first before you actually start making your money. Um, If it's, you know, just simple music licensing you want to do non-exclusive, there's resources like Jingle Punks, what other ones? There's obviously resources um, like a lot of people have worked with Taxi, Broad Jam. You know, there's a few other ones that you can get. Getty Images Library. Um, hmm. These kind of resources that you can essentially go out and you know sign up for. Some of it is going to have a fee, but it's you know these libraries are large. It's something where you're not a priority by any means because you're just a small fish in a big sea. Uh, but they, they do turn things around. I've had plenty of people that I've worked with that before working with us have gone and worked with companies like Jingle Punks or Broad Jam and have gotten placed on shows. But a lot of the music supervisors, they prioritize the people that they can rely on. Mm-hmm. You know, So our music licensing services, for example, we have very personal relationships with. We know exactly how and when to deliver the product. Mm -hmm. Uh, much more effectively than would be an unsolicited material. Mm -hmm. So, So, I mean, So when someone comes to you guys with their music, are there some sort of guarantees? Like, oh, that'll be placed in at least this one TV show. Sure, sure. I mean, or is it like, if it gets used, then we'd pay you guys a cut of that or something like that? Or how does... Yeah, that's a good question. You know, essentially, there's there's never a guarantee in the music industry. Mm-hmm. And anybody that gives you a guarantee in the music industry is probably full of shit. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> to be quite frank with you, even with record deals, you know, you might get some terms that outline how many records they are going to support you with and other kinds of things. But, I mean, there's any infinite number of stories of record deals going south and not working out how they had otherwise been outlined. Mm-hmm. And anything in a contract, although it's written on paper, is not necessarily the way that it's going to be. I mean, you gotta always keep that in mind. Like, it's certainly probably going to, I mean, it's outlined that way, and there's definitely lesser wiggle room there, but there's no guarantees. I mean, with, with radio, we can kind of generally expect, uh, with the quality of artists that we're working with, somewhere around half of the stations getting, you know, ads and, and generally building awareness and getting airplays. With television, I mean, we build in a guarantee that basically uh, we only get paid for our work and our time when we actually 
have a license in hand and our artists choose to sign it because they are non-exclusive agreements. They are between the artists and the networks or the shows. We only get paid for our time when it's successfully done. Okay. We do work with our internal rosters on the licensing side of things. So gotcha. we only work with our radio and our press le- rosters. It's uh, partially a numbers thing. I mean, we can only send three or four albums a month to our music supers. So yeah. it limits us very fast. Yeah. You know, and we've honestly had licenses pan out over the course of years sometimes, you know, um, if with publishing, it can take a long time. I've, I know plenty of other bands that have worked with other publishing companies too that come to us and say like our our guy over here is hasn't done us anything you know and the the day that they say that they've come back and said well we actually we're getting placed on this show tomorrow night so <laughs> it turns out it did work out it just took a long time for it to pan out sure um again the more time that you spend in this industry learning the ropes interacting with the community building your networks you're going to find out that there are ways into these different arenas and there are ways to be successful. So although yeah. it is very uh, cumbersome at times and personally agonizing to, to work your way through the music industry because of all of the generous pitfalls that are built in, there are ways to succeed and sure. make a living. Sure. Yeah. Do you have tips for getting bloggers on your side? I mean, interacting with the sites is always a good thing. You know, if you are part of the blog, if you're a part of the community, you're leaving comments and you're you're being a part of it, you're an active member of that community, that can certainly get a foot in the door, you know, because obviously bloggers are paying attention to the people interacting with them. Mm-hmm. Being patient, certainly taking the time to reach out and having all of your materials organized. You know, if you're going to contact a blogger and all you have is their email address, Ask them, what's the appropriate way for me to send you my music? I've included my one sheet attached here with a few links, but if you'd prefer a physical, I can send that over. Please take your time. If I don't hear from you, maybe I'll touch base in a couple of weeks. And follow it up like a job. You know, don't be pestering them all the time. It's something where you give that grace period for them to take the time to get back to you. And if Mm -hmm. they don't, uh, it could be that they're not interested, but it also might be that they've got their busy lives going on and they've got other things that have distracted them from getting to your music. Mm-hmm. So give it a week or two and follow up and say, hey, just wanted to touch base since you, you know, music last week and I just wanted to see if you'd had a chance. If not, I understand. Thank you for your consideration. You know, yeah. just keep it simple. Do you have any tips or do's and don'ts for branding statements for yourself or your band? Like, how much fluff do you put in the email to any bloggers or other promoters? Little to none. I mean, I would just, again, make it as as straightforward as possible. If they, you know, are asking, like on our site, we ask for, what other things have you done promotionally? You don't have to go on and on for pages about every little thing that you've done or your entire career history. I want to know what's relevant to right now. So one thing that you do want to do is what's currently happening put it into a few sentences it doesn't need to be any more than that if it's your website again just keep it simple it doesn't need to to be pages of text or or content that's all over the place it's got to just be something that i can go to and quickly and easily interact with Mm -hmm. when you're sending information over it's good to generally briefly introduce yourself (laughs) tell them exactly what it is you're looking for 
be polite and leave your contact information. And if it's something where you have the music in a simple link, put it in there, make sure that it's embedded so that it's, it's something that I can go and just click on, make sure that it's typed correctly, proofread. Yeah. And, and don't, don't, you know, if you think, if you're wondering to yourself, is this too much? It's probably too much. You know, I think that's a general rule to live by. Mm-hmm. Going back to the getting placed in movies and TV, Jim Anderson was asking, what are the tangible benefits to getting a song placed in TV or film? Sure. Like, probably every deal varies wildly what people get compensated right, for. Right, right. I but, mean, you know, for television, a lot of network programming functions with gratis licenses. And basically what that is, is that they're not going to pay you a sync fee to actually use them or sign the paper and use the music. It's something where they've cleared the music for use. So you don't get anything. Well, no, they do pay royalties. This is the minimum. They will pay you a songwriter's royalty. This is going to get paid out through your performing rights organization, whether that be BMI, ASCAP, or CSAC. You're also going to get paid for the publisher's share. Unless you have a publisher, then they're going to collect that share. So if you're an independent songwriter and you own 100% of your music, you're going to get both halves of whatever royalties it is that you're going to make. On the other hand, if it's like an advertisement placement or something, you would probably collect a sync fee as well, where you actually are going to be used in that program. That's what you're signing it for is the specific use, and they'll pay you for signing the paper as well, signing the license. And obviously the inherent promotional value. That's going to be the key thing. You know, yeah. That's your tangible return in the immediate future is that you just got heard by a lot of people that otherwise hadn't heard your music before. Well, Patrick, I've had you in here for a while talking, so yeah. <laughs> appreciate you. It's getting hot in here too, so we gotta yeah. make sure to turn on the, the fan and, and yeah. get everything uh, opened yeah. up. Um, it was fun. It was. Thanks for having me. Definitely. I hope that I shed some insight for people and yeah. you know, if anybody does listen to this and wants to reach out to me, they're certainly welcome to ask me questions. It's, you know, tinderboxmusic.com and you can find my contact information there, but our email addresses are always our first name at tinderboxmusic. So it's Patrick at tinderboxmusic.com. If you feel like emailing me. Cool. Um, and if you're in the Minneapolis area, you can always look us up and set up a time to swing by. Yeah. So I wish you all the best of luck in your songwriting endeavors. Keep at it. Yeah, thanks, Patrick. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Composer Quest with Patrick Hertz of Tinderbox Music. Their site is tinderboxmusic.com, and check them out if you're interested in hiring them to promote your music. Patrick also mentioned some music licensing companies to check out, and I've posted my spreadsheet of those at composerquest.com slash tinderbox. All the music you heard in this episode is actually older music from Patrick Hertz from when he was 16. Just a reminder, I'm going to have the premiere of Composer Quest Season 2 on August 28th. My first episode of the season is going to be a little bit of an experiment. I'm going to create what I'm calling my musical obituary. Sounds kind of morbid, but I think it's a fun idea. Basically, it will be an explanation of all the random tracks someone would find on my hard drive. Both stuff I'm proud of and stuff I might be embarrassed about. But I think it'll be entertaining, and hopefully it'll shed some light on my composition process, which maybe you've been wondering about. 
I'll have a little live introduction to season two if you go to composerquest.com on Wednesday, August 28th, 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. And in addition to introducing the new season on that live webcast, I'll be happy to chat with you a little bit and hear your questions and suggestions about where we should go with ComposerQuest. So, thanks again for listening, and I will see you August 28th for ComposerQuest Season 2.